The presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn are under fire after they testified before Congress this week about anti-Semitism on college campuses and appeared to evade questions, including would they discipline students who called for the genocide of Jews. Today is Friday, December 8th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, a good report on jobs. U.S. employers added 199,000 jobs in November as the unemployment rate fell to 3.7 percent. A farming region in Washington state wants to limit agritourism activities such as weddings, but some farmers depend on those for income. I worry that in the desire to save farmland, we are sacrificing farmers. And we'll hear from former Boston Globe editor Marty Barron about his new book, Collision of Power. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. A federal appeals court has preserved most of a gag order against former President Donald Trump in his federal election interference case. The panel concluded some of Trump's remarks pose a significant and immediate threat to the D.C. trial scheduled for spring 2024. But the judges said a lower court gag order swept in too much speech protected by the First Amendment. The appeals court kept in place limits on speech against witnesses, court staff, and lower-level prosecutors when it comes to words designed to interfere with their work or testimony. But Trump will be able to criticize the special counsel, Jack Smith. The appeals court had struggled to balance free speech concerns against the inflammatory nature of Trump's remarks. Carrie Johnson, NPR News. The United States has vetoed a U.N. Security Council ceasefire resolution in the war between Israel and Hamas. Thirteen council members voted in favor of it. Israel continues its heavy bombardment of Gaza, and Hamas is still shooting rockets into Israel. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley saw Israelis taking cover at a Tel Aviv beach as sirens started to sound. As the sirens wail, people are running. There's nowhere to shelter. So Tel Aviv resident Ella de la Zuana shows me how to lay down and cover my head. Ooh. We lie there as Israel's air defense system shoots the rockets down. There are puffs of smoke in the sky. How do you feel at times like this? Oh, I feel crazy. But she says the rockets are minor compared to the hostages and the October 7th Hamas attack. This 54-year-old says she believed Israelis and Palestinians could coexist before. Now everything has changed. All my life I, I was from the left, and now I don't care. It's me or them, so it's me. Palestinians have expressed similar hopelessness and fears as they face the Israeli offensive against Hamas that Gaza authorities say has caused thousands of deaths. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Georgia's governor is set to sign new congressional boundaries into law. Raul Bali with member station WABE says the courts struck down the current map. A federal judge said the current lines dilute the power of black voters and that Georgia needed to draw an additional black majority congressional seat. Georgia Republicans drew that district while maintaining their 9 to 5 advantage in the U.S. House. State Democrats believe that comes at the expense of a majority-minority district that is currently represented by Congresswoman Lucy McBath, who has a national profile for her stance on guns. The next major step is a December 20th hearing on the new map held by the federal judge who originally struck down the current map. For NPR News, I'm Ronald Bally in Atlanta. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Federal regulators today approved a first-of-its-kind treatment for severe sickle cell disease. The drug was co-developed by Boston-based Vertex Pharmaceuticals. It's a one-time gene-editing therapy known as Casgevy and will be available to people 12 years and older. Vertex Chief Scientific Officer David Altshuler calls it historic medicine. This is the first one-time treatment for sickle cell disease with the potential for a lifetime of benefits. For science, it's the first approved medicine using the new technology of CRISPR. And for society, most importantly of all, patients with sickle cell disease have been underserved for a very long time. The treatment involves a bone marrow treatment that takes several months to complete. Altshuler says the company is working as fast as it can to set up treatment centers and expects the drug to be covered by insurance. MassHealth will soon allow members to use a doula for pregnancy, birthing, and postpartum services. Doulas provide help to pregnant women but are not obstetricians. The Healy administration says it's an effort to reduce disparities and inequities for low-income families and families of color. The governor's office says people who use doulas are less likely to have a C-section or preterm birth and more likely to be successful at breastfeeding. The new benefit comes becomes available in the spring. After reporting losses over the past few weeks, the state's largest hospital network says it has recovered financially. Mass General Brigham reported today that it took in nearly $19 billion in revenue in the last fiscal year. The network credits more efficient patient care and stabilized labor costs and inflation. Mass General Brigham executives say they're continuing to look for ways to cut costs but are not planning any major layoffs. And former Governor Charlie Baker will return to the State House this month. He'll be there December 21st for the unveiling of his official portrait. Baker now leads the NCAA, the college sports governing body. In the forecast, partly cloudy overnight tonight, down around 34 degrees. And then for tomorrow, should be partly sunny, up around 52. Sunday could get into the low 60s, lots of clouds during the day. Winds and heavy rain coming down Sunday afternoon, late in the day, and overnight into Monday. 41 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One, with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The nation's job market has shifted to a lower gear, but it shows no sign of stalling out. That is boosting hopes for a soft landing with lower inflation and no recession. Today, we learned that U.S. employers added 199,000 jobs last month. NPR's Scott Horsley reports. November's job total was pumped up a bit by the return of auto workers and Hollywood actors who had been on strike the previous month. Setting aside those gains, hiring was roughly in line with the 150,000 jobs that employers added in October. Hiring last month was concentrated in healthcare, restaurants, and government. While job growth has slowed since the beginning of the year, employers are still adding more than enough workers to keep unemployment in check. The unemployment rate fell last month to just 3.7 percent. It's been under 4 percent for 22 months now, the longest such streak since the Vietnam War. Economist Sarah House of Wells Fargo says the recent moderation in job growth is just what the Federal Reserve wants to see as it tries to bring inflation under control without sending the economy into a ditch. 
I think overall the Fed's going to be happy with this report. You still have an overall strong jobs market that it's not rapidly collapsing by any means. I think it keeps that path open for potentially avoiding a recession. Wage gains have also moderated. Average wages in November were up 4% from a year ago, compared to an average increase of 5% the previous year. The good news, House says, is that even though this year's pay raises appear smaller, they're no longer being gobbled up by rising prices. Importantly for consumers, it's still outpacing inflation right now. So the slowing that we're seeing in wage growth still leaves consumers in a decent position for spending. So far, solid job gains have done little to improve people's mood about the economy. Polls show a majority of Americans are grumpy about the economic outlook. Still, more than half a million people came off the sidelines last month and started looking for work. And with gasoline prices falling sharply in recent weeks, some of the gloom may be lifting just a bit. A survey from the University of Michigan released this morning shows consumer sentiment improving for the first time in five months. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Let's discuss this with White House economic advisor Lael Brainerd. She is director of the National Economic Council. Welcome. Well, it's good to be here. When you look at this new data, unemployment is extremely low, wages are growing, job creation is strong. So what do you think the biggest challenge is right now? What's the number one problem that you're focused on trying to solve? Well, before we get to challenges, I think it is important to just recognize uh, how good the job market is. Another 199,000 jobs, 14 million more Americans working uh, since the president uh, came to office. What a change from where we were just over a year ago. If you think about it, inflation was very high and forecasters thought we couldn't get inflation down to where it is today without millions of people being unemployed. But that said, I think a lot of people still find that too many things are still too expensive. So inflation is your number one concern right now? Yeah. So I think the president very much thinks about the economy from the perspective of Americans sitting around their kitchen tables. You know, one interesting data point is the rate that women have returned to the workforce. During the pandemic, women left their jobs at far greater rates than men, partly because those jobs were more likely to be eliminated and partly because women bear a disproportionate childcare burden. And this year, we saw the share of American women in the workforce hit a record high. Why do you think we've seen such a dramatic rebound? Well, I think uh, that is a really notable feature. Again, if you think about some of the doom and gloom uh, three years ago, people were talking about the great resignation, saying that women, particularly women with children, wouldn't be rejoining the labor force. But instead, what we've seen is a rebound in labor force participation for women overall, but particularly for prime age women. Uh, And that is in those prime working years of 25 to 54. And that includes mothers with young children. And I think that is in part a reflection of really strong childcare policies that the president put into effect to make sure that people would have access to childcare at a time when a lot of childcare centers were facing challenges. But it's also true uh, because uh, there's more flexibility in how many Americans are able to work right now. Mm. So you're saying the ability to work from home is helpful to working age mothers? I think that is part of the answer. Part of the answer has to be childcare and continuing the policies that support access to childcare, access to Head Start, universal pre-K. So despite the strong job market, 
and rising wages and falling inflation. Americans do not think the economy is good. A majority of respondents told Gallup last month that they think the economy is getting worse. And that has been the case for almost every month of Biden's time in office. How do you account for this disconnect? Well, while the jobs picture is very bright, we know that many Americans are worried that some things are not affordable. And that's why the president is so focused on fighting to bring down costs for hardworking Americans. For instance, the president believes it just isn't right that prescription drugs are practically unaffordable for many Americans. And that's why he's fighting to lower health care costs. He got great legislation to cap insulin costs for seniors at $35 a month. That's down from $400 for many. You know, we also are capping out-of-pocket drug costs for seniors at $2,000 per year. And Medicare has the authority now to negotiate prices starting with 10 drugs next year. And yet, do you think when roughly three quarters of Americans tell Gallup the economy is getting worse, it's because of something like insulin prices? I mean, the question seems to be broader than that. And I would think the answer comes from a sentiment that's broader than that. Well, actually, this morning we saw a really big jump up in consumer sentiment uh, in the Michigan survey. And I think consumers are very focused on the costs that matter most to them. Healthcare is a huge uh, affordability issue for so many Americans. But consumers are also tired of being hit by hidden fees. That's why we're cracking down on junk fees in everything from airline ticketing to credit cards to overdraft fees. Um, and it's also really important, you know, now that we have fixed supply chains and input costs are coming down, corporations need to be passing those savings on to consumers. And we think that will go a long way to continuing that increase in consumer sentiment that we saw today. Do you find it puzzling just personally as an economist who is focused on numbers and driven by data to look at these consistently positive unemployment reports and see the numbers consistently say Americans think the economy is bad? I mean, it just feels like such a yawning chasm. Yeah, no, it's it's a good question. It's a it's a much more uh, mixed picture than that. Um, if you look at Americans' attitudes towards their personal finances, actually, you know, more than two thirds of Americans feel that their personal finances have improved, and that makes sense because wealth is up by about thirty seven percent for the median household since the pandemic. And it's also true that wages are up more than uh, inflation, so people can actually afford more. But at the same time, when Americans look at particular prices, they're not coming down. That's why we are going to continue fighting to bring those costs down. Leo Brainerd is director of the National Economic Council. Thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. Houston voters will choose their next mayor tomorrow in a runoff election between Texas State Senator John Whitmire and Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. The contest will have significant implications for how the country's fourth largest city addresses concerns about public safety and a looming budget crisis as federal COVID relief funds run out. Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider reports. Whitmire and Jackson Lee, both Democrats, emerged as the top two vote-getters during the first round of this formerly nonpartisan election. Whitmire is white and centrist, while Jackson Lee is black and more progressive. The main issue driving voters to the polls in Houston this year is crime. 
Jackson Lee is a member of the House Homeland Security and Judiciary Committees. Whitmire chairs the Texas Senate's Criminal Justice Committee. He says that even though crime rates are falling in Houston, public safety is still a cause for concern. Perception means so much. You know, last fall with the number of murders we had for about two months, we were being described as the murder capital of the U.S. That hurts our public safety, but it also hurts our economy. Houston isn't the murder capital of the U.S. According to data from the Houston Police Department, the city ranked fourth in the country for murders in 2022 behind Chicago, Philadelphia, and New York. Still, crime is top of mind for voters and a place where the candidates are seeking to differentiate themselves. Whitmire's solution is more police. Increase hiring, but also bring in 200 state troopers to aid the Houston Police Department with things like traffic enforcement. That's been controversial. Similar moves in Austin and Dallas have led to accusations of racial profiling. Jackson Lee attacked Whitmire's record during a debate on Houston's Fox 26. Well, unfortunately, under the tenure of my good friend, the senator, more African-Americans and Hispanics were locked up in the state system. Crime is far from the only problem Houston's next mayor will need to address. We're looking at the fiscal cliff. That's University of Houston political scientist Geronimo Cortina. He says the city has been relying on federal COVID relief funds for the past few years to help balance its budgets. That money is about to run out. And that has very important implications for the delivery of services, for uh, crime and safety, public safety issues, but also in terms of our aging infrastructure. Cortina co-authored a Houston Public Media, Houston Chronicle, UH Political Science and Population Health poll. It shows Whitmire with the support of 42 percent of likely voters, compared to 35 percent for Jackson Lee. She'll need a strong turnout among black voters to overcome Whitmire's advantage with older white voters. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Schneider in Houston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, why the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania are facing calls to resign. WBUR supporters include the Provider Group, an insurance brokerage and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance. ProviderIG.com. Stocks ended the first full week in December on the upside. The Dow rose nearly four-tenths of a percent. S&P also gained four-tenths of a percent, a new high for the year. And the Nasdaq gained nearly a half percent. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen. Now accepting orders and helping you plan for your holiday catering needs. Learn more at FreshCityKitchen.com. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. WBR meteorologist Danielle Noyes is tracking a storm Sunday night into Monday, but before then, she says we should have a pretty mild weekend. Highs in the 50s tomorrow under mostly cloudy skies, a sprinkle or an isolated shower. Sunday, we're going to challenge records as highs climb into the 60s. Showers arrive Sunday afternoon, turn to a steady rain Sunday evening. There'll be heavy rain Sunday night into Monday morning. Embedded thunder is also possible. Rainfall totals around an inch. Localized flooding possible. The wind 
will be an issue too, ramping up Sunday night gusts 45 to 55 miles per hour likely in eastern Massachusetts, including the city with some gusts to 65 miles per hour from Cape Ann to the South Shore and Cape Cod. Utility crews are prepared to respond to any outages from Sunday's storm. Eversource says it's already bringing crews from other states to be on standby. This is WBUR 41 degrees at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world, and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older. NPRWineClub.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We journalists lament that we have used the term uncharted waters so often in recent years to describe the state of American politics that the term has almost ceased to register. But what else can we call this? What words feel adequate to the challenge of reporting on what is shaping up to be yet another presidential election year of, yes, uncharted waters, covering a Republican frontrunner who may well spend more time in court than on the campaign trail in these coming months? So how do we cover this? What have we learned from covering the elections of 2016 and 2020? How can we do better? How do we earn back public trust. I'm going to put these questions to a man who ran the newsrooms of the Miami Herald and the Boston Globe, and then took over the Washington Post in 2013 and steered that newsroom through Donald Trump's presidency. Martin Barron wrote about it all in his recent memoir, Collision of Power. Marty Barron, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. There's so much discussion these days, as you know, over whether democracy is on the line in next year's election. Do you believe it is? Uh, Yes, I absolutely do believe it is. All you have to do is listen to what uh, Donald Trump has been talking about, what he says he's going to do in another administration. He's the only politician I've heard actually talk about suspending the Constitution. He's talked about uh, using the military to suppress entirely legitimate protests, using the Insurrection Act. He's talked about bringing treason charges against the then outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's talked about bringing treason charges against Comcast, the owner of NBC and MSNBC. He's talked explicitly about weaponizing the government against his political enemies. And of course, he continues to talk about crushing an independent press. So all of those by nature, by definition, are authoritarian in nature. So let's turn to our role as longstanding members of an independent press. If one believes, as I gather you do, that good journalism is an act of patriotism. What does that look like these days? Well, I think we have to be clear about what a second Trump administration uh, would look like. We also have to look at what a second Biden administration would look like and see what his plans are. But with regard to Trump, he's being very explicit about uh, what he intends to do. So we report about. on what he says he intends to do. That's that's well, one not of... just what he says, but talking to his team and the plans that they're making for the policies they intend to implement as soon as he moves into the White House, if that turns out to be the case. So let me put to you a couple of the arguments which you anticipate and write about in your memoir. One is that we can do the 
greatest reporting in the world, does it matter if people, including Trump voters, are not reading or listening to media outlets like the Washington Post or like NPR, if we're not reaching people? Yeah, well, it's true. Uh, media consumption is highly polarized. The real challenge is how do we reach a broader audience, as you say? Yeah. Uh, I think there are a number of things that uh, we can do. I don't think that it's the case that our, our work doesn't resonate at all. I think it does resonate with the independent thinkers out there. Uh, that may not be a huge portion of the population, but it's a significant portion of the population. But I, I think we need to cover the totality of American society. We need to reflect people's uh, lives, their concerns. And then on the more highly charged topics, we need to lay out the evidence. We need to point, if we're talking about a court document, we need to show that court document. Uh, we need to annotate it so that people can see exactly where we got the information, point to a video, point to a data set, point to an audio, whatever it might be. Make the assumption that people won't believe a word we say and then say, okay, here's the evidence in the same way that a, a trial lawyer would present the evidence before a jury in a court. I guess everything you're telling me sounds utterly reasonable. It also sounds not worlds away from what you might have told me 10 or 20 years ago if I were asking you how to cover a presidential election. Is it enough these days to lay out the evidence, to report facts, if people don't believe them? Well, I, as I said, I do think that there's a portion of the population that is open to evidence. I think we'll never reach the point where everybody is going to trust what we do, but we can certainly reach a majority of the population and have them trust us. And let's look at incremental improvement. And I think that's what we ought to be focusing on. So I know you're out now. You're happily retired. If you were back at the helm of the Washington Post today, would you be telling editors, telling reporters to approach this next election in any way differently than 2020? Well, I'm happy with what we did in 2020 in terms of how we covered the election, both in 2020 and 2016. And I would approach it very much in the same way, at least at the Post. I do think there's some things that the media in general could change. I certainly don't think that CNN and Fox News should do what they did in 2016, which was airing his rallies from beginning to end without any interruption, without acting as an intermediary whatsoever and letting him say whatever he wanted, many of them completely, entirely falsehoods. And so that I don't think was helpful. And it was a, practically a campaign gift to, uh, to Donald Trump. So that kind of media behavior, I, I don't think is appropriate and certainly should not be repeated. You describe in this book lying awake at night, not able to sleep. In this instance, you're agonizing over whether and what to publish about documents to do with National Security Agency surveillance documents that Edward Snowden had leaked. And you write about spending the night reading about the Espionage Act of 1917 and looking at provisions that spell out prison terms. I want to know what should be keeping newsroom editors awake tonight? December 2023? Uh, I would worry about particularly the impact of generative artificial intelligence, the idea that fake images, fake visuals of all types, uh, whether it be photographs or videos, fake audios uh, will be circulating rapidly. They'll be disseminated across the entire country, across the world, and it will be very difficult for the media to catch up to that. Uh, we are completely unprepared for that. People are going to believe those videos and those fake images and those fake audios. And we are not in a position as a profession to counteract that with the speed that we really need. 
And so that that is what worries me. And I suspect that toward the end of this campaign, uh, we'll see a lot of that stuff and it will affect people's votes. And we in the profession uh, won't have the capacity to uh, to deal with it. Last thing, as you and I speak, it seems major news outlet after major news outlet has been publishing um, op-eds or analysis pieces, but warning about the risks and dangers of a possible second Trump presidency. My question to you, Marty Barron, is that a good idea, given a lot of people do not distinguish between reporters and the news pages and editorials and the editorial page? Well, I think in all possible ways, we need to explain what a, a second Trump administration would look like. I think that is the task of people on the opinion pages. I think that's the task of reporters as well. And I think that it's it's an obligation. But on does the part it reinforce the, the view that Trump loves to put out there that America media is is against him, that it's a witch hunt? I don't. Uh, maybe it does. Uh, I don't think we have an alternative except to tell the American public what it might be in for what it's likely to be in for if Trump were to be reelected. Morton Barron, former editor of The Washington Post and author of Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and The Washington Post. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. A new 24-7 web stream on classical music radio networks combines video game music with classical. That story coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR. Overnight tonight, temperatures down around the mid-30s. Tomorrow, clouds and sunshine. Temperatures in the low 50s. And then for Sunday, could have clouds to start the day. Lots of rain. Heavy winds in the afternoon. Could be 44 to about 55 miles an hour. The rainstorm should continue into Monday morning. This is WBUR. It's 430. WBUR supporters include Loomis Sales, offering an undergraduate summer internship development program that provides first-generation college students with the strategies, skills, and access to networks for success in the investment management industry while instilling a sense of social responsibility. And Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974. In Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com. Hi there, it's Margaret Lowe, the CEO of WBUR, here to say thank you to everyone who gave so generously during our year-end fundraiser. We are blown away by your support, and we promise that was the last fundraiser this year. If you haven't had a chance to give yet and you'd still like to, please go to WBUR.org and click on the Donate button. It's the one with the little heart next to it. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In the Middle East, the health ministry in Gaza says more than 17,000 Palestinians have been killed since the war with Israel began two months ago. At least two-thirds of them were women and children. More than 1,200 people have been killed on the Israeli side, most of them civilians, killed in the initial attack by Hamas. U.N. officials warned the Security Council that Gaza is reaching its breaking point. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby told reporters today that the Biden administration shares the concerns about protecting civilians. We've been talking to the Israelis about deliberate and precise targeting for quite some time. And as uh, 
we've been saying in the last few days, they have been receptive to, uh, to our input. And they have, in fact, taken some steps uh, to, uh, to try to be more careful. Kirby says they're hopeful that Israel will allow additional aid trucks into Gaza over the weekend to help alleviate some of the immediate needs. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley is back in Iowa today following a Republican presidential debate this week where she was the center of attention. From Iowa Public Radio, Clay Masters reports. Nikki Haley is hoping to build on rising poll numbers with some weekend town halls in the state. She'll also speak at an event that features speeches from two of the other candidates on this week's debate stage, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and businessman Vivek Ramaswamy. The forum is hosted by Iowa Congressman Randy Feenstra. The three candidates will have another chance to go head-to-head at a January 10th debate on the campus of Drake University in Des Moines. CNN will host the event just five days ahead of the Iowa caucuses. Candidates will need at least 10 percent support in three polls to participate, and one poll must be of likely Iowa caucus-goers. Former President Donald Trump, who leads in the polls, has skipped every debate. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey is moving to fill one of two open spots on the state Supreme Judicial Court. Healy is nominating Elizabeth Dewar as the high, to the high court. Dewar has served as state solicitor since 2016 and would succeed Justice Elspeth Seifer, who will retire next month. That still leaves the governor with another appointment to the high court after the surprise announcement from Justice David Lowey that he will step down in February. The U.S. Secretary of Veterans Affairs joined local leaders today to celebrate the opening of the new Soldiers' Home in Chelsea. The facility will accommodate more than 150 residents. Governor Healy calls this a critical investment. There's nothing more important for us to do than to take care of those who have served. Veterans, service members, their families. And so today is a really moving day. It's an important day. Nearly 100 veterans died in state facilities in Chelsea and Holyoke during the pandemic, prompting reforms. Construction on a new veterans home in Holyoke is now underway. And for the first time, the classic Army-Navy football game will be played at Gillette Stadium tomorrow afternoon. This will be the 124th meeting between the two oldest service academies. Today, cadets and midshipmen had a tug of war at Minuteman National Park in Lincoln, a contest to see who could do the most pull-ups at Fannel Hall and a relay race at the Bunker Hill Monument and the USS Constitution. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com. Should be partly cloudy into the night, down around 34 degrees overnight, so warmer than it has been. And speaking of warmer, tomorrow should reach 52 degrees, some sunshine, lots of clouds around. Pretty decent day for the Army-Navy game. Sunday, we could get up to the low 60s clouds during the day. Winds picking up in the afternoon with rain coming down. A real rainstorm into Monday morning with winds possibly reaching 65 miles an hour from Cape Ann all the way down to Cape Cod and the South Shore. 41 degrees in Boston. The time is 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. Fisherinvestments.com. 
Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Tension has been building this week since the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania testified on Capitol Hill about the steps that their institutions are taking to protect students from anti-Semitism on campus. Harvard's Claudine Gay, Penn's Liz McGill, and Sally Kornbluth of MIT appeared before the House Committee on Education and the Workforce on Tuesday. In one intense exchange during more than three hours of testimony, New York Republican Congresswoman and Harvard alum Elise Stefanik questioned Gay about whether calls for the genocide of Jews would violate the university's code of conduct. It is at odds with the values of Harvard. Can you not say here that it is against the code of conduct at Harvard? We embrace a commitment to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, offensive, hateful. It's when that speech crosses into conduct that violates our policies against bullying, Does that speech not cross that barrier? Does that speech not call for the genocide of Jews and the elimination of Israel? All three university presidents have faced widespread condemnation since appearing on the Hill and equivocating on this question. The fallout has been swift. North Carolina Republican Virginia Fox, who heads the committee, announced an inquiry into the learning environments at the schools. Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York said all three presidents should resign. Hedge fund manager Ross Stevens threatened to pull a $100 million donation from the University of Pennsylvania. And thousands of Harvard alumni have written to that school's board demanding its president, Claudine Gay, be replaced. All right. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo joins us now to talk about all of this fallout. Hey, Sequoia. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so this hearing, I mean, it's clearly touched a nerve and all three universities are now facing possible consequences. What is the latest at this point? Well, let's start with Liz McGill. So she's the president of UPenn and calls from her school and her state to resign are maybe the loudest right now. Donors are mad. Like you mentioned, one is even threatening to pull $100 million. Mm-hmm. Six members of Congress from Pennsylvania also sent a letter to the school's board of trustees calling for McGill's resignation. Now some are asking for the chair of the board to resign too. The board is meeting today to talk about it. But pressure has been mounting on McGill for some time. Students, alumni, donors started to raise concerns back in September after an event on campus hosted speakers who had a history of anti-Semitic comments and behavior. Fast forward to October 7th and the Hamas attack and the Israeli military response in Gaza, tensions grow even higher and these calls are echoed even louder. People like John Huntsman, former governor of Utah and U.S. ambassador to Russia, China and Singapore said his family would halt their donations. And things keep happening on campus. In November, a group of staff members received disturbing emails calling for violence against the Jewish community. Later that month, anti-Semitic messages were projected outside three buildings at Penn. Okay, that's Penn. What about Harvard and, and MIT? MIT's board actually issued a statement yesterday saying that they stand behind their president, Sally Kornbluth. But Claudine Gay of Harvard has been facing similar calls to resign. She issued a statement after the testimony to clarify her responses. She said, calls for violence or genocide against the Jewish community or any religious or ethnic group are vile. They have no place at Harvard. 
and those who threaten our Jewish students will be held to account. And then yesterday, she doubled down. Gay sat down with the student newspaper on campus and apologized. She said she's sorry and that she, quote, got caught up in what had become at that point an extended combative exchange about policies and procedures. Harvard has faced similar problems to Penn with anti-Semitic incidents on campus. The most widely covered one being the letter signed by students in the wake of the October 7th attack, <laughs> which held Israel entirely responsible for the unfolding violence. That prompted outrage from donors and alumni. That's right. Uh, I want to go back for a minute to Gay's apology at Harvard when she said her testimony had become an exchange about policies and procedures, as she put it. I mean, yeah, her mm -hmm. answers were about the line between speech and conduct, but there's so much more to it than that, right? Right. Freedom of speech on campus is often tied up in the broader culture wars playing out in American politics right now. And this week's hearing was absolutely no exception. There is pressure from all sides. The Biden administration even spoke up. The Department of Education sent a letter to college administrators last month saying that schools must take aggressive actions to address anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on campuses or else risk losing federal funding. You also have Virginia Fox of North Carolina, like you said, Republican chair of the House Committee on Education, issuing a statement yesterday that they're launching a formal investigation into Harvard, UPenn, and MIT. That is NPR's Sequoia Carrillo. Thank you, Sequoia. Thank you. How should farmland be used? That's what one community in Washington state is debating right now. KUOW's Monica Nicholsberg reports. The Skagit Valley is an idyllic farming region about an hour north of Seattle. It's populated by small, diverse, family-owned farms. Farms like Bowhill Blueberries, which siblings Ezra Rance and Audrey Matheson bought during the pandemic. We've got our blue crop, um, which is what we sell fresh and frozen and do our U-pick lanes. Rance and Matheson say their five-acre farm doesn't produce enough to cover their expenses, so they've turned to agritourism to supplement. And that includes cooking classes, pie classes, farm dinners, and even thinking about using our house here as an Airbnb. But in the Skagit Valley, the county is considering new zoning code regulations that would limit those kinds of agritourism activities. Under the new proposal, the county would scale back how many times a year those are allowed to happen, from 24 to 12. That may not seem like a lot, but farmers like Rance say they fear the attention the new proposal is getting will increase enforcement, which they say has been pretty lax until now. The whole system relies upon your neighbors complaining about your activities. Proponents say there's a limited amount of fertile land and they want it to be used for farming. Rance sees it differently. I worry that in the desire to save farmland, we are sacrificing farmers. The county's Agricultural Advisory Board came up with the proposal. Michael Hughes is the chair of that board. He's also a fourth generation farmer who runs a large potato farm. He says he wants to support farmers, but he's concerned that tourist operators could transform farmland into event spaces for weddings and corporate retreats. We wanted to focus on parts of agritourism that still promote agriculture and soil-dependent production as the primary focus in our county. Hughes also says that event venues and farms can make for difficult neighbors. Dust can drift long ways, smells move around the valley. That can easily ruin an outdoor wedding. And if farmers have to accommodate multiple events at a neighbor's property each week... All of a sudden, you're stuck without being able to get the work done before the weather changes. This kind of conflict isn't unique to the Skagit Valley, according to Lisa Chase. 
She's the director of the University of Vermont's Tourism Research Center, and she studies agritourism nationwide. Agritourism is growing rapidly in rural communities. She says that farmers all over the country, especially small producers, need agritourism because profit margins are so slim. But she says there's disagreement in many communities over how to balance agritourism with farming itself. Neighbors are not always thrilled, especially when it's a large event, to have the traffic and the noise and people coming to this farm for an agricultural experience. She says that in many places, whatever regulations do get passed rely on citizen complaints for enforcement. For NPR News, I'm Monica Nicholsberg in the Skagit Valley. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Video game music and classical music might seem worlds apart, but a new 24-7 radio stream on a classical music network in California is blending them together and trying to show how this pairing can work for fans of both genres. From member station KQED in San Francisco, Alexander Gonzalez reports. It's called Arcade. And guiding listeners through this medley is Jennifer Miller-Hamill. In a world full of uncontrolled magic and political intrigue, you could be the only thing standing between peace and oblivion. The main theme from Dragon Age Inquisition by Trevor Morris. Hamill is an avid gamer, like since the Atari 2600 first came out in the late 70s. And she also has a formal background in piano and opera. She hosts Arcade on Classical California, a pair of classical radio stations in Los Angeles and San Francisco. But there's been so much classical music used in video games. Hamill says that's because this genre in particular helps create atmosphere, like in the game What Remains of Edith Finch. One of the characters in that game is a young child, and to evoke the innocence of childhood, you hear Shakovsky's Waltz of the Flowers. What I want to do with Arcade is to show my traditional classical music listeners how these pieces have been creatively used in video games and how these incredibly important cornerstones of classical music have then served to heighten the experience for a gamer. She also wants to highlight the range of great original scores that have been made for video games which she says gamers and classical music fans can get a lot out of, even without knowing anything about the game. You don't need to know the specifics of the story in order to have that emotional experience. Video game scores have gotten so good, it makes sense there'd be a large enough catalog to build this kind of stream, says Steve Horowitz. He teaches a game music class at San Francisco State University and says that many video game scores have gotten the same orchestral treatment as film music. What's happening with game music is just an extension of what happened with film music coming into the concert hall. Arcade's listeners say that part of what's exciting about the new stream is the way that it both showcases their favorites and broadens their horizons. Anthony Hansen is both a gamer and a classical music fan. I can hear the stuff that I know and have listened to growing up, and I get to hear all the new stuff for the games that I haven't played. Hansen, whose voice characters for several video games like God of War and Star Wars Battlefront, has been tuning into Arcade to discover new pieces, like a variation on the theme to Tetris. It got me all giddy, because I'm like, here's a game I grew up with, and it's just another version of that theme. For classical music fans like Christine Grant, Arcade has exposed her to the vast variety of video game music she never would have otherwise heard. I'm not a gamer at all, but all of the music that I heard was just 
so much fun. Grant recalls listening to Arcade for the first time about a month ago. She was stuck in L.A. traffic. There had been an accident. Everything was just kind of chaotic, and Peace was playing, I think, from The Legend of Zelda. And I just kind of lost myself in the music. I didn't want to have to get out of the car and go to work. Arcade's host, Jennifer Miller Hamill, says she's gotten requests from listeners to add more music to the stream. She says she's planning to put out a fresh playlist each quarter. For NPR News, I'm Alexander Gonzalez in San Francisco. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Tonight shouldn't be as cold as it has been for the past couple of nights, right down around the mid-30s tonight. Tomorrow, a blend of clouds and sunshine, temperatures back up to the low 50s. Then Sunday should be eventful. Could get a record warm, breaking 60 degrees, clouds to start the day, and then they let loose with rain in the afternoon, a heavy rain Sunday night into Monday. It's 448. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And Midwinter Revels, celebrating the season with music, dance, theater, and carols, December 15th through 28th at Sanders Theater in Cambridge. Tickets at revels.org. The news from Israel and Gaza continues to change quickly. Stay with WBUR for the politics, the personal stories, and the history you need to understand what's going on. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Barely Read Books of Sudbury, proudly sponsoring WBUR's reading of A Christmas Carol to benefit Rosie's Place. Rare books for gifts at barelyreadbooks.com. And Globe Santa, bringing books and toys to children in need. Joy is a gift every child deserves. Join the Globe Santa tradition. Donate now at globesanta.org. I'm Nagin Farsad, in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we asked Dakota Johnson what it was like growing up with famous parents. Well, I would tell you different things that I tell my therapist. Okay. <laughs> this week, we'll ask our guest Fred Schneider of the B-52s to spill his innermost secrets. That and more on the News Quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's the second night of Hanukkah, the Jewish festival of lights. Lighting candles each night is a central holiday tradition, and music can be a big part of the celebration, too. In Milwaukee, that music is getting a new spin with a project called Latkes con Salsa. The project melds Hanukkah favorites with Latin rhythms. Mayan Silver from member station WUWM in Milwaukee reports. The Latin Jewish music connection has been strong over the decades. Whether that's beloved Cuban singer Celia Cruz recording Hava Nagila, or Larry Harlow, a renowned Jewish pianist known for salsa recordings. It's a connection that's really struck Milwaukee musician Mitch Shiner. One of my favorite styles of music is Latin jazz, and that's really a fusion of many different styles all at once. 
and being more than somewhat interested in my own cultural identity, I wanted to figure out a way to make a fusion of the two things that I really enjoy, which is traditional Jewish tunes and the amazing rhythms that come from the Caribbean and South America. Matzabal Merengue is one of the songs on Shiner's album Latkes con Salsa. It's his reworked version of another song that was popular in 1959 when the Irving Fields Trio released their mix of Latin and Jewish music, bagels and bongos. You know, a lot of this music was played for big dance halls in the Catskill Mountains of New York where a lot of Jewish people would go and they love dancing to salsa bands. He says these musical traditions share a similar element, the harmonic minor. I have a melodica with me so I can play it for you. It sounds like this. And that kind of sound is shared between music of Spanish and Middle Eastern origin and in Jewish music too. So I think there's a simpatico there where I think Jewish people would hear those harmonies and go, oh yeah, like something in me, I recognize that. plays both the vibes and drums. His Latkes Con Salsa project is not only an album, but also a live concert series in Milwaukee this winter. One of the songs is a medley. It combines a 1981 hit from the Puerto Rican supergroup Bata Cumbele called Se Le Ve, or You Can See It, with a Jewish kid song about the top you spin on Hanukkah called I Have a Little Dreidel. Hey, I have a little And it's very catchy, but yeah, after you've been hearing this song for I don't know how many years, you're like, okay, enough already. So finally I said, you know, this song needs a little help. So Shiner adapted the lyrics to Seleve's melody, which he says has a spinning quality like a dreidel. He got help translating the English to Spanish from Joey Sanchez, a bass player on the project. The music, yo tengo un rey delito. So, yeah, yo tengo un rey delito. De barro lo formé. Yeah, it's like, I made it out of, uh, how do you say barro? It's clay, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> they, um, and then, uh, cuando este seco y listo. When it's dry and ready. I will play with it. Well, I will I'll, play it. I'll right. play dreidel. Yeah. Right. I'll be ready to play dreidel. Yeah. <laughs> Sanchez is from Puerto Rico, and he got some laughs out of Shiner's reinterpretation of the original Se Leve. When I heard that, that, I was like, Mitch is crazy. But, but this, this is what I say most of the time. I'm telling you. Me as a bass player in this project, this music that I, you know, I feel like I've been playing before, but when he add them, these melodies to this bass that we're creating, it's magical. Mia Malel, 
a more niche Hanukkah song. It's typically sung as a round. That one's a little bit more on the traditional side. It has a little, the text is more serious. The text says, who can retell the things that befell us? And it talks about pretty much all of the different groups who tried to attack and destroy the Jews throughout history. story details how the Jews rose up against Greek invaders in ancient times in what's known as the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabee warriors were able to reclaim the Jewish temple the Greeks had seized. During their rededication of the temple, the Maccabees lit the menorah and, according to legend, witnessed a miracle, since they only had enough oil for one night, but the oil lasted for eight days until they could get more. Shiner wanted to honor this in the music. Yeah, so this one has the propulsive rhythm of Bombasica from Puerto Rico, and that is really centered on the that going on underneath it. It kind of has a march-like quality. I thought it was important, a, a good match for talking about the Maccabees, you know, the song about them going and marching, you know. say they love this musical tradition they've created to honor Hanukkah just as much as they love a mix of latkes and salsa. I mean, really, what, it's based, it's a hash brown, it's papas fritas, right? Yeah, it's papas fritas. You can put ketchup in it or salsa from the tacos. Right, any, right. I mean, what, what is, it can't be bad. Fried potatoes with any kind of sauce, like, can't be bad. Move over sour cream and applesauce. There's a new Hanukkah tradition in the works. To eat and to listen to. For NPR News, I'm Ayan Silver in Milwaukee. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Heifer International, where people can donate animal gifts like goats, chickens, or sheep to struggling families to help them create sustainable futures. Learn more at heifer.org NPR. From Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. 
This is 90.9 WBUR, 38 degrees in Boston. The Army-Navy game is going to be played at Gillette Stadium tomorrow for the first time ever. Kickoff is at 3 o'clock. And tonight, the Celtics will be at the Garden to host the New York Knicks. The Celts are 15-5 and five on the season. The Knicks are 12-8. and eight. WBUR supporters include Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. SunbugSolar.com. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com. Member FDIC. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The FDA has approved the first medical treatment that uses gene editing to treat an illness, in this case, sickle cell disease. I'm elated, excited, in awe. It's an exciting day and beginning of a new era in medicine. A closer look at how the gene editing technology partly developed by Cambridge-based Vertex works. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, an Israeli strike has destroyed an iconic and historic mosque in Gaza. Israel says it was aiming at Hamas militants. And actor Mark Hamill lends his voice to the English-language dub of the new animated film The Boy and the Heron. One thing that's great about animation is you're not self-conscious because you're not on camera. It liberates you to make choices that you wouldn't make if people could see you. More on the art of translating a film coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Ethan Crumbly, the teenager who shot and killed four classmates and wounded several others at Michigan's Oxford High School in 2021, has been sentenced to life in prison without parole. He pleaded guilty last year to one count of terrorism causing death, four counts of first-degree murder, and 19 other charges. Loved ones of the victims and those injured gave emotional testimony today as they urged the judge to give Crumbly the harshest sentence possible. Before the sentencing, Crumbly told the court he is, quote, a really bad person, and he asked the judge to give those left behind what they want. Any sentence that they ask for, I ask that you do impose it on me because I want them to be happy and I want them to feel secure and safe. And I do not want them to worry another day because I really am sorry for what I've done, for what I've taken of them. Michigan doesn't have the death penalty. Crumbly was 15 at the time of the shooting. As expected, the U.S. has vetoed a U.N. Security Council vote on a ceasefire in Gaza. This is the head of the U.N. and several Security Council members were in Washington today for a rare joint motion to pressure the Biden administration to drop its opposition. Riyad Mansour is permanent observer of Palestine to the U.N. He urged member stations to support the ceasefire, saying it's the only way to preserve the Palestinian people. This war is part of the assault to end the Palestinian people as a nation and to destroy the question of Palestine. If you do not share this objective, you must stand against the war. This as desperate Palestinians flee Israel's expanding ground war, crowding into a shrinking area of the Gaza Strip. It's been three months since Hamas attacked Israel.
President Biden is traveling to Las Vegas to announce new high-speed rail funding. NPR's Mara Lyson has more. The president will be discussing his administration's commitment to fund high-speed rail projects, $66 billion to develop high-speed rail corridors around the country. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg said that each project will have environmental as well as economic benefits for the communities it serves. In California, for example, it's anticipated that high-speed rail would reduce emissions by about 2 million metric tons, which is uh, uh, on par with taking over 400,000 passenger vehicles off the road every year. The president's trip was planned before the mass shooting on Wednesday at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. The White House says the president will also address this latest gun massacre while he's in the state today. Mara Liason, NPR News. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 130 points. It's up three-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq gained 63 points. That's up nearly a half percent. S&P 500 up 18 You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A medicine co-developed by Boston-based Vertex Pharmaceuticals has become the first gene editing therapy authorized for use in the U.S., Kasjevi treats severe forms of sickle cell disease in people ages 12 and up. That's a rare debilitating blood disease that causes intense pain and fatigue and primarily affects people of African descent. Kasjevi was previously approved for use in the United Kingdom. Massachusetts' largest hospital network has recovered from major financial losses reported this time last year. Leaders at Mass General Brigham say the recovery is partly because inflation and labor costs have stabilized. WBR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey has more on what the hospital system System's latest financial report says. The hospital network collected almost $19 billion in revenue in the last fiscal year, and it reversed a loss in operations. Chief Financial Officer Niam Gandhi says Mass General Brigham has become more efficient at admitting and discharging patients. It's encouraging to see that the hard work that the teams on the ground have been doing, that our caregivers have been doing, is resulting in improved financials. We're not where we need to be for long-term sustainability, but it's significant improvement. Gandhi says Mass General Brigham is looking for ways to cut costs, but is not planning big layoffs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Mass Health announced today it will cover doula services starting next spring. A doula is someone typically without obstetric training who provides support to a woman during pregnancy. Doula services have been shown to improve several maternal and infant health outcomes. Starting next spring, Mass Health says it will cover doula visits during uh, pregnancy and in postpartum period. 41 degrees now in the Boston area should be around the mid-30s overnight tonight. Uh, with the blend of clouds and sunshine coming in for tomorrow, inching up to the low 50s. And then for Sunday, could hit a record warm of 60 degrees. Clouds during the day, rain, heavy winds in the afternoon, Sunday night, maybe into Monday morning as well. This is WBUR. It's 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Center for Audit Quality, committed to enhancing public trust in the economy through assurance. Auditors are serving investors, small businesses, and working Americans. Learn more at thecaq.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. The Food and Drug Administration approved the first genetic therapies for the devastating blood disorder sickle cell disease today. The approvals include the first treatment in the U.S. that uses gene editing to treat any illness. The announcement is being hailed as a landmark for both the treatment of sickle cell 
and the rapidly advancing field of gene editing. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein is here with the news. Hey, Rob. Hey, Ari. This seems like a big deal on a number of levels, and I know you've been reporting on this for years. What do we need to understand about today's announcement? Well, Ari, first of all, this is huge for sickle cell patients. Sickle cell is a brutal genetic disorder that makes patients' lives miserable and often cuts their lives short. Both of these genetic therapies offer patients a one-time treatment designed to alleviate their suffering for life. So that's a major step for a disease that disproportionately affects people of African descent that has long been neglected by medical research. Here's Dr. Nicole Verdun from the FDA at today's announcement. These treatments signify an important medical advancement for patients with sickle cell disease and have potentially transformative implications for the future of gene therapy. Specifically, this is a huge moment for gene editing, which has generated a lot of excitement for the potential to cure many diseases. And with today's approval, gene editing for the first time moves from being an experimental pie-in-the-sky idea to something that a doctor could prescribe to help patients. I talked about this with Jennifer Dowden at the University of California, Berkeley. She shared a Nobel Prize for helping discover the gene editing technique known as CRISPR that's being used in the treatment. I'm elated, excited, in awe. It's an exciting day and the beginning of a new era in medicine. CRISPR treatments are showing promise for diseases ranging from rare genetic conditions like muscular dystrophy to more common illnesses like, you know, cancer, heart disease. So gene editing offers hope for people with a wide variety of diseases, but today's announcement is specifically about sickle cell. Can you tell us more about that part? Yeah, sickle cell is caused by a genetic defect that creates deformed red blood cells that cause unpredictable attacks of the worst pain you can imagine and all kinds of health problems. Most patients don't make it past middle age. Both of the new treatments involve removing bone marrow cells from patients so they can be genetically modified. One uses a modified version of a virus to ferry a new gene into the cells. The other uses CRISPR to edit a gene in the cells. Doctors then infuse the modified cells back into patients where they pump out a healthy version of a protein the sickle cell patients are missing. And it appears to work in almost every patient treated so far. Victoria Gray from Forest, Mississippi, she was the she was the first sickle cell patient to be treated. NPR broke that story back in 2019 and had exclusive access to Chronicler experience. Here's her reaction to today's announcement. I'm ecstatic. It's a blessing that they approved this therapy. It's a new beginning for people with sickle cell disease. The treatment has been, you know, nothing short of life-changing for Victoria, enabling her to work full-time, take care of herself and her children, and not worry about whether she's going to die suddenly, leaving her kids without a mother. This is such positive news. Without detracting from that, are there any drawbacks or concerns that people should be aware of? Yeah, well, one big concern is long-term safety. The treatment that uses a virus has already been linked to a possible risk for blood cancer. But another big concern is, will the patients be able to get it? The companies that make the treatments are charging $2.1 million for the gene editing approach and $3.1 million for the uh, one that uses a virus. And these right. treatments are very complicated and grueling. So it yeah. might be hard to deliver to the patients who need it most. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein, thank you. You bet, Ari. The British government is pushing ahead with one of its most controversial policies, a plan to deport undocumented migrants to the Central African country, Rwanda. 
So far, legal challenges have stymied the proposal that's already cost British taxpayers twice what government officials promised. And no one's even been deported yet. NPR's Lauren Freyer has been reporting on this for months, and she is in our London bureau now. Hey, Lauren. Hi there. Okay, so who exactly is the UK planning to deport to Rwanda and and why? So these are Syrians, Afghans, other migrants who've been arriving in southern England, crossing the English Channel by boat without permission, without visas. More than 100,000 people have come to the UK this way in the past five years. The UK government... Okay, so to be very clear, these are not Rwandan people. No, absolutely not. These are people who may never have set foot on the continent of Africa before. Wow. And the UK government says it cannot accommodate these additional migrants. Social services are spread thin. There's a housing shortage here. There's a cost of living crisis. And so the government says it's come up with this creative solution, is what it calls it, to deport them to Rwanda. And it has paid the Rwandan government about $300 million to take these people and pledged more funding. But nobody has been deported yet. And why is that? Because UK and European courts have blocked flights at times at the 11th hour. In the summer of 2022, a plane was on the runway, ready to take off for Rwanda. And then one by one, every migrant on that plane was plucked off, pulled off because of legal stays. And I talked to one of them and they had these like harrowing emotional ordeals. They have concerns about whether Rwanda is a safe third country for people who have, in some cases, been fleeing persecution from elsewhere. So courts have blocked this policy, but but then how is it that the UK can still push ahead? Yeah, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is facing a revolt from these anti-immigrant hardliners in his own conservative party who are threatening to oust him from power if he doesn't push this through. His immigration minister resigned this week. And so Sunak keeps revising this legal framework of this deal to try to get around these court rulings. Here he is at a news conference yesterday saying he's willing to block anyone, like even refugees, from settling in the UK. Claiming asylum, that's now blocked. Abuse of our modern slavery rules, blocked. The idea that Rwanda isn't safe, blocked. That reference to modern slavery, I mean, Sunak accuses these people of being economic migrants and of abusing protections under British law that rescue people from potential slavery. Okay, so Sunak is under pressure from the right wing of his own party. But what about voters? Like, how are Britons feeling about this? I don't know, rather unconventional immigration proposal, right? Yeah. I mean, immigration has been a big issue here in the past. If you recall Brexit, the the vote to leave the European Union for many was a, a vote to control the flow of Europeans into the UK. But polls show immigration is really no longer one of the Brits' top concerns. For example, 10 years ago, 60 percent of Britons saw immigrants as potentially taking away their jobs. Now, 60 percent of Britons see immigrants as crucial to this country's economic recovery. Wow, that is a pretty stark reversal in just a decade. Yeah, and so doubling down on anti-immigrant sentiment may not work for Sunak. He is trailing in the polls ahead of an election next year. He's nevertheless taking this to Parliament for a vote early next week, and his political future may depend on it. That is NPR's Lauren Freyer in London. Thank you so much, Lauren. You're welcome. The oldest mosque in Gaza dates back to Crusader times a thousand years ago, and it has been badly damaged by an Israeli strike. An Israeli official says Hamas militants were using it as cover. People are still living nearby as conditions grow worse. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports. I visited the Omari Mosque in Gaza City a few years ago with tour guide Ayman Hassuna. You want to enter? Yeah. Okay. Taking off my shoes. 
The carpet feels really nice. Yes, we are the name of the church. It was a crusader church in the 12th century, and until now was Gaza's most iconic historical landmark and its central mosque with blue carpets and stained glass windows. Now it's unrecognizable. A journalist in Gaza filmed the piles of rubble. You can hear the buzzing of a drone and fighting nearby. The top of the minaret is damaged. Some archways are still standing, but most of the mosque's main hall is covered in rubble, one of many cultural landmarks damaged in Gaza. An Israeli official who spoke to NPR on condition of anonymity to offer a preliminary assessment confirmed the strike and said the mosque grounds contained a tunnel shaft used by militants and said Hamas fighters had regularly used the mosque for cover. Israel says it's trying to eliminate Hamas so it doesn't carry out another attack like the one on October 7th that killed 1,200 people. The Gaza Health Ministry says the Israeli bombardment has killed more than 17,000 people. The Israeli military dropped flyers today calling on civilians to leave the area near the mosque to escape combat, but many have stayed. 22-year-old Mustafa Shahawani says he lives near the Omari Mosque and joined a group of residents who ventured out today and saw it. He says it was completely destroyed. It was awful. The mosque is now a hole. This is where we held holiday prayers, Ramadan prayers. All our memories were there. He stayed for just a moment and rushed back home. Shahawani studied accounting in university. He's sheltering with his grandmother now, who's in her 80s. She cries every day, he says. Most residents fled weeks ago as Israeli troops invaded. He says he doesn't think there's anywhere else safer in Gaza to go. He got to walk around Gaza City during the brief ceasefire a couple weeks ago. He saw vast destruction and many bodies in the streets and can't stop thinking about the bodies of a woman and child he saw. Now the war is back on, and he eats one meal a day with his grandmother, plain rice. We asked him when was the last time he ate cheese. He's craving cheese. He and his grandmother ration their little supply of drinking water. Each drinks one cup a day. His last shower was a month and a half ago. He said, there's no hope in life. We saw horrible things and just want to live in peace. It's not necessary for kids and women to die. Residents had been burying their dead in the yard next to his house. He says they ran out of space two days ago. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. SemesterOff.com. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Stocks ended the first full week in December on the upside. The Dow rose nearly four-tenths of a percent. S&P also gained four-tenths of a percent, a new high for the year, and the Nasdaq gained nearly one-half percent. The average cost of heating oil in the state continues to rise with the recent cold temperatures. A new survey by the State Department of Energy Resources shows the statewide average is 4.17 a gallon. That's 90 cents lower than this time last year. But that would mean it costs more than $1,100 to fill the average size oil tank at home. The forecast now, WBR meteorologist Daniel Noy says we are in for a warm weekend, but a storm should move in Sunday evening. Highs in the 50s tomorrow, mostly cloudy and isolated shower. Sunday, we climb into the 60s. Record high to beat in Boston is 64, and that will be challenged. Showers arrive Sunday afternoon. Steady rain by Sunday evening turns heavier Sunday night into Monday morning. Downpours embedded thunder possible. Localized flooding potential will have about an inch of rain expected. Big wind concerns, too. Gusts pre-dawn Monday through the morning hours, 45 to 55 miles per hour, much of eastern Massachusetts. Gusts to 65 miles per hour along the immediate coast possible. Eversource said today is bringing crews from other states to help respond to any outages resulting from the storm. Join some of your favorite WBR hosts at City Space for our annual reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It's Tuesday, December 19th. Tickets are at wbur.org events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world and every purchase supports NPR's high quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older nprwineclub.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Venezuela claims to be moving ahead with plans to take over a huge oil-rich territory in neighboring Guyana. The threats have drawn international concern. The U.S. announced joint military flight drills there. Brazil is reinforcing its northern border. And the U.N. Security Council is meeting about it today. John Otis reports. For more than a century, Venezuela and its much smaller neighbor Guyana have bickered over where their border should lie. At stake is a jungle region called Essequibo that makes up two-thirds of Guyana's territory. To reassert Guyana's claim to this land, President Irfan Ali, along with Guyanese military officers, recently toured Essequibo in a helicopter. Then they raised their country's red, gold, and green flag, to which they pledged allegiance. The dispute over Essequibo was resolved in Guyana's favor by an international tribunal in 1899. But Venezuela rejected the decision. And ever since huge offshore oil deposits were discovered in Guyana in 2015, Venezuela has pressed its claim to the territory. The matter is now before the UN's International Court of Justice. However, Venezuela rejects the court's jurisdiction. And last Sunday, it went ahead with a referendum in which voters approved a plan to annex Essequibo. Citing the results, Nicolas Maduro, Venezuela's authoritarian leader, went on TV to propose a law making Essequibo the nation's 24th state. 
el nuevo mapa de Venezuela. Then Maduro unveiled an official map with Essequibo now affixed to Venezuela. Finally, he said foreign oil companies in Essequibo have three months to get out so that Venezuela's state oil company can move in. Guyana had better realize that by hook or by crook, we're going to settle this, Maduro warned. However, all of this may be just political theater. Maduro is deeply unpopular at home. Many Venezuela watchers say his bellicose statements are designed to drum up nationalist fervor ahead of his bid to win another term in the country's presidential election next year. But Mark Curtin, a political analyst in Georgetown, Guyana's capital, doesn't rule out some kind of military intervention by Venezuela. When governments are at its lowest, they become unpredictable. There's a concern because we see this nationally as an existential threat. Over the years, there have been border skirmishes. And shortly after Guyana gained independence from Great Britain in 1966, Venezuelan troops took over Guyana's half of an island on a jungle river that the two countries shared. Relations used to be better. Before striking oil, Guyana received low-cost petroleum from Venezuela. Over the past decade, as Venezuela's democracy and economy have crumbled, nearly 30,000 Venezuelans have migrated to Guyana. We are extending a hand of love and friendship to the people who are coming to Guyana. They are in our hospitals, our schools, and we are working together as brothers and sisters. That's Jerry Govea. Guyana's national security advisor in a TV interview. He said that threatening to swallow up most of Guyana is no way to repay his country for its hospitality. The Venezuelan government is being very aggressive. They are behaving like the neighborhood bully. As the conflict escalates, a patriotic song from the 1970s has become the soundtrack for Guyana's fight to defend its territory. It's called Not a Blade of Grass. Not a blade of grass. For NPR News, I'm John Otis. The Boy and the Heron is the latest movie from Japanese animator Hayao Miyazaki, who is now 82 years old. Set during World War II, it tells the story of a young boy named Mahito grieving the loss of his mother. One day he's pulled into a quest in a mysterious supernatural world where he grapples with questions of life and death. The movie's out today in U.S. theaters, and its English-language cast is stacked. Gemma Chan, Christian Bale, Florence Pugh, plus one A-list actor whose performance renders him virtually unrecognizable. NPR's Vincent Acavino has more. Save me, my What came out of Robert Pattinson's mouth when he stepped into the recording booth was a surprise to pretty much everyone. The truth of the matter is, you did not see your mother's dead body, am I right? She's waiting for you to rescue her. Including Stephanie Shea, who wrote the English language script for The Boy and the Heron. We didn't know what he would sound like. I don't even think he knew what that sounded like, you know, until it came out of him. Pattinson plays a devious heron who wants Mojito to follow him into an unknown world. I'll be your guide. But a performance like this doesn't just materialize out of thin air. It's a physical challenge. I was like bringing him tea and <laughs> like lozenges and then some like Chinese herbal ninjam pipako, which is like this thick syrupy cough syrup. It begins with a script which is where Shay comes in. First, she watches the original Japanese version of the movie with English subtitles. I try to kind of make note of 
Where do I feel things? Where did I have a reaction? Where did I laugh? Then she adapts those English subtitles into spoken dialogue, and a big part of the job is making sure that that dialogue matches the characters' mouths moving on screen. Characters who were originally speaking in Japanese. So I feel bad for the actors in the sense that they really had to, they had to alter their performances. So that means like changing your cadence or talking a little bit slower、Correct. or making sure you're、Correct. filling out space in the right way. Right, but doing it in a way that is believable and doesn't just sound like you're talking slower. This world I've created, and all my power, every little bit of it, originates from this stone. That's Mark Hamill, a voice you probably do recognize. He's Luke Skywalker, but also a big name in the voiceover world. In this movie, he plays a character known simply as Grand Uncle. Worlds are living things, and they can be infected by mold and bugs. I have grown old. I seek someone to be my successor. It's heady stuff, and it's the kind of performance Hamill says is only possible in this medium. One thing that's great about animation is you're not sort of self-conscious because you're not on camera. It liberates you to make choices that you wouldn't make if people could see you. Now, some fans feel that watching anime with the original Japanese voice actors is the most faithful way to experience these stories. It's a debate that writer Stephanie Shea knows all too well because she is a lifelong anime fan. Even she used to feel this way. She says she's since changed her tune a bit. Plus, Boy and the Heron transcends anime fandom. You know, the stuff that Miyazaki makes is appealing to、uh, to everyone. This means they also have to be understandable to everyone, especially children. Miyazaki has said he makes movies for his third grade self. Here's Karen Fukuhara. She plays the character of Lady Himi in the movie. The appeal to dubbing is the audience can connect、uh, to the movie because it's in their mother tongue. It's sometimes just better than reading the subtitles down below.、Um, it it hits you harder.、Oh, that looks just like the tower in my world. Well, sure. That's because it's the same one. That tower over there has the ability to straddle all kinds of different worlds. Ultimately, what's most important is that everyone can be transported to Miyazaki's worlds, regardless of the language they speak. Vincent Acavino, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is ninety point nine WBUR in Boston. Coming up tomorrow, Boston is blessed with some of the most creative college radio stations around. Tomorrow morning on WBUR ninety point nine, the first comprehensive history of U.S. college radio, including Greater Boston's key spot on the dial. Tune it in and stick around, and then wait, wait for, or wait, wait for, wait, wait. Starting at ten o'clock tomorrow, in the forecast overnight tonight, look for partly cloudy skies. A waning moon tonight. Temperatures around 34 degrees, and then for tomorrow, should have highs around 52 degrees. Sunshine and clouds both. Look for stormy weather moving in late in the day Sunday. Temperatures could get to the low 60s. It's 5:30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Now offering gift memberships, give a year of art and inspiration, while also providing vital support to the museum. ICABoston.org, and Fresh City Kitchen. With a goal of delivering holiday catering, everyone will keep talking about. FreshCityKitchen.com.
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is Radio Boston. I'm Scott Tong. I'm Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's here and now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The United Arab Emirates says it will continue to push for a ceasefire in Gaza after the U.S. vetoed a Security Council resolution calling for that. NPR's Michelle Kellerman says the vote came despite the efforts of Arab leaders who were in Washington today to press the U.S. to use its leverage with Israel to end the war. Before going into a joint meeting with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Jordan's foreign minister, Ayman Safadi, expressed frustration with the U.S. position on a ceasefire. Today's failure to support the call for a humanitarian ceasefire is an endorsement of further killing of Palestinians, further violation of, of international law. The U.S. argues that it was Hamas that broke a deal that led to a seven-day pause in fighting because it stopped releasing hostages. Blinken's aides say he wants to talk to Arab ministers about a future Gaza without Hamas in control. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The presidents of Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania are continuing to deal with fallout after this week's testimony before Congress on the school's efforts to fight campus anti-Semitism in the wake of the ongoing war in the Middle East. From member station GBH in Boston, Kirk Carapeza explains. Republican Elise Stefanik asked the presidents whether calls for genocide against Jewish people would violate campus harassment policies. Harvard's Claudine Gay said it would depend on the context. That answer has sparked outrage, even as some question the motives of Stefanik and others behind the hearing. Gay has since issued a statement saying a call for genocide would not be acceptable. Meantime, Rabbi David Wolpe has resigned from Harvard's Anti-Semitism Advisory Committee, citing Gay's testimony as one of the reasons why. Reporter Kirk Carapeza. Meantime, Congress has launched an investigation into speech policies at the schools. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA today announced that it's going to take longer to fix the tracks on the new Green Line extension than expected. It says the tracks are too narrow to allow trains to move safely at regular speeds. The project's contractor was to finish Monday but needs another week. Buses will continue to shuttle passengers on both the Union Square and Medford Tufts branches. Also in the news today, Harvard economics professor Claudia Golden is in Sweden to accept the Nobel Prize in economics this weekend. She's being awarded for her research, finding large gaps in pay and employment levels for women. During a talk in Sweden today, Golden spoke about the disparity that's caused when women in a couple take on a flexible, lower-paying job so they can take care of family while men work the higher-paying jobs. The last mile, the last chapter, the final act in the gender gap saga cannot be written until couples share more and until the world of work makes that a less costly thing to do. Golden is only the third woman to win the Nobel Prize in economics. The award will be presented on Sunday. The Army-Navy football game is being played tomorrow in Gillette Stadium for the first time. Patriots coach Bill Belichick's father was an assistant coach for Navy. Belichick says it's a thrill for the game to be played in Foxborough. I look forward to the the people I'm going to see, the 
the the classic event that it is, not just the game, but everything that leads up to it, uh, starting with you know some events today and tonight, and and uh, and hopefully culminating in a Navy win. Patriot long snapper Joe Cardona is still active in the Navy Reserves. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. Temperatures are headed down. We're 37 degrees now, right around 35 degrees overnight tonight. A blend of clouds and sunshine tomorrow. Temperatures up around the low 50s, and then Sunday should be eventful. Could get into record warm territory, breaking 60 degrees. Clouds to start the day, then rain in the afternoon, a heavy rain Sunday night, some wild winds. The rainstorm could continue into Monday morning. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In New Zealand this week, thousands of indigenous Maori took to the streets in protest. They've been voicing their disapproval of the new conservative government's plans to review a treaty that was signed by the British colonists and Maori chiefs almost 200 years ago. The government has also pledged to close the Maori Health Authority, curb the use of Maori language in government organizations, and has proposed other policy changes. New Zealand Prime Minister Christopher Luxon says the reason for all of these changes is because he claims voters want services to be based on need and not race. Well, here to talk about why Maori people are protesting is Claire Charters, a professor of law at the University of Auckland, specializing in indigenous people's rights. She also sits on the New Zealand Human Rights Commission as the tribally appointed partner. Welcome. Thank you. So I want to start with a treaty I just mentioned. It's called the Treaty of Waitangi. Can you just briefly explain what this treaty was and why Maori are upset that the government is even planning to review it? The Treaty of Waitangi was signed in 1840 between Māori chiefs and the British Crown. And under it, Māori uh, retain our sovereignty or self-determination and also the protection of our lands, uh, territories um, and other resources and other things that are precious to us, including language and cultural rights. So what the government is trying to do is to reinterpret what the treaty means. So what are some specific policies that the new government wants to reverse, policies that have been meant to address inequities facing Maori people? Quite worryingly, the government is proposing to abolish what is a Maori academic, I guess, quota for Maori into medical schools. So it is really worryingly, at least to me, that the government would go in and undermine and undercut university policy that is consistent with our Bill of Rights Act, our human rights uh, legislation has been there for some time, has not 
even gone even close to addressing the inequality in the number of Māori doctors that we have compared to non-Māori doctors. So it's really worrying to me that the government is, is going into legislatively override a university policy to try and get some equality and equity in our hospitals and, and all our medical profession. So the Prime Minister says that programs and services should not be based on race. Now, obviously, you and other Maori disagree with that. Can we just step back for a moment and talk about what are the systemic inequities in New Zealand mm-hmm. that you still see disproportionately affecting Maori people there? Like, what is the argument for preserving certain programs that are based on race? So Māori sit on the bottom of virtually every socioeconomic indicia that, that we find in Aotearoa New Zealand. So be it poverty, be it housing, be it health, be it education, our life expectancy is much lower. Um, 63% of the women's uh, prison population is, is made up of Māori. So we sit at the bottom of all these indicia, um, socioeconomic indicia, um, including incarceration. There's clearly a relationship between this and uh, the impact of colonisation, the so-called loss of uh, land very quickly, Māori own very little of land, um, well under 5% in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So there's a very strong correlation between these sort of socioeconomic factors and indicia and the experience of colonisation. Now, that would suggest that certainly being Māori is something that you should take into account when trying to achieve um, equity and equality. What the government is proposing currently is something very different, namely that those factors of um, being Indigenous are irrelevant. And so that's really problematic, and it's shown to be historically not to work. That is Claire Charters of the University of Auckland. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. The Michigan teen whose murderous rampage took the lives of four classmates at Oxford High School in 2021 will spend the rest of his life behind bars. That's the sentence handed down today by a Michigan judge after hours of often heart-wrenching statements by survivors and families of victims, among others. Quinn Kleinfelter of member station WDET is covering the sentencing and will warn you that this story contains details of a school shooting. Hi, Quinn. Hey, Ari. Uh, When the judge handed down the sentence of life without parole for Ethan Crumbly, who's now 17 years old, what was the reaction from survivors in the courtroom? It was a day full of tears and trauma. There was more than 20 people who spoke, talking about how the rampage tore apart their lives. One was former student Kylie Osage. Crumbly shot her near her spine that left her with debilitating injuries. Osage says she constantly relives the moment that she crumpled to the floor of the school hallway. She was next to student Tana St. Juliana, who Crumbly had also shot, and who was dying. 15 minutes of laying there absolutely helpless. 15 minutes of lying in a pool of my own blood. 15 minutes of hearing Hannah St. Juliana's last sounds while stroking her hair and trying to encourage her. Crumbly shot and killed four students in all, then waited for law enforcement to arrive so he could watch the aftermath of the carnage. He pleaded guilty last year to both murder and terrorism, and he spoke in court today. What did he say? Crumbly kept his head down throughout the proceedings until the very end, and then he said he deserved any sentence given him, but Crumbly said he believed he could still rehabilitate himself. So I really am sorry for what I've done, for what I've taken of them. I cannot give it back. 
but I can try my best in the future to help other people, and that is what I will do. And did that seem to have any impact on the judge? Not really. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled that a judge must weigh other factors besides the crime itself, like a teen's upbringing or mental state, before they sentence an underage offender to life without the chance for parole. The prosecution contends Crumbly is that rare juvenile that deserves the harshest penalty because he not only planned the shooting but also researched how long it would take for police to arrive so that he could surrender and enjoy watching the carnage he'd created. Crumbly's attorneys and court-appointed guardians say he's not the same person as he was two years ago, that he's remorseful now. But Judge Kwame Rose says he believes there's little chance that Crumbly could be rehabilitated. He chose not to die on that day because he wanted the notoriety. Respectfully, defendant is the rare juvenile before this court. Crumbly's court-appointed attorneys say he's already signed the paperwork to appeal the sentence. And I understand Crumbly's parents are set to appear in court soon as well. Yeah, in fact, they have uh, now separate cases. They're charged with involuntary manslaughter. Prosecutors say they were grossly negligent. They bought their son the gun that was used in the crime as a present, and they didn't remove him from the school the day of the shooting. It's believed to be the first time that the parents of a killer at a mass school shooting have ever faced such charges. Initially, when they were charged, they were uh, on the run, it seemed, for a couple of days before turning themselves in. And now their attorneys say that they want separate trials for the parents because they say that they're beginning to pit themselves against each other. Quinn Kleinfelter is a reporter with WDET in Detroit. Thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is urging manufacturers of masa, that's a corn flour used to make foods like tortillas and tamales, to add in some folic acid. The idea is to try to lower the risk of certain birth defects in the Hispanic population. Texas Public Radio's Bonnie Petrie explains. Spina bifida is a neural tube defect, an NTD a birth defect that develops during the first month of pregnancy before most have any idea they might be pregnant. When the neural tube doesn't close all the way, the spinal cord is unprotected, which can lead to damage to the spinal cord and nerves and a range of physical and intellectual disabilities. One group of Americans is particularly vulnerable. Hispanic women, unfortunately, have the highest risk of having a neural tube defect-affected pregnancy, and that's for a variety of reasons. Captain Jenny Williams, a nurse epidemiologist, is team lead of the Neural Tube Defect Surveillance and Prevention Team at CDC's National Center on Birth Defects and Developmental Disabilities. They have risk factors like some genetic variations um, are found in the Hispanic population at higher rates than they are in uh, non-Hispanic whites or non-Hispanic blacks. Folic acid is a form of folate, vitamin B9. Neural tube defects are linked with folate deficiency at the beginning of a pregnancy. So, since 1998, the Food and Drug Administration has required that companies add folic acid to rice and wheat products. So anything that's labeled enriched will have folic acid um, included in, in that product. 
So breakfast cereals and bread and pasta, staples for many Americans, are all fortified with folic acid. But corn matzo flour is not. We had enchiladas and chili. Terry Locke is Latina. These were the staple foods in her home growing up, and masa was a key ingredient. We did a lot of tortillas, a lot of sopapillas. Locke has spina bifida and associated medical challenges, including tethered spinal cord syndrome and club foot. So it was a difficult childhood of just in and out of the hospital, you know, having... I've probably had maybe 12 surgeries on my foot to lengthen my heel cords and things like that. In 2016, the FDA agreed to let corn masa manufacturers fortify their flour with folic acid if they wanted to. But Williams, with the CDC, says it's unclear right now how much masa and how many masa-containing products like tortilla chips actually contain folic acid. Whatever it is, it's not enough to significantly reduce the risk of neural tube defects in the Hispanic population. Williams sees that as another unacceptable health disparity. Hispanic women have the highest rates of, of NTDs. We know how to prevent these NTDs, but we need to be able to get that prevention to the people that need it the most. Terry Locke agrees. After a lifetime of surgeries, she still deals with constant pain. She believes fortifying foods that are staples in her culture will reduce the risk that others will experience that pain. If we prevent one child from having spina bifida, that's huge. CDC is planning research in U.S. markets with high populations of Hispanics from Mexico and Central America to determine which stores carry fortified corn masa flour products and how much shelf space is allocated to them. For NPR News, I'm Bonnie Petrie. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the state of the U.S. economy and why the good news seems to get buried. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity, and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker, beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. Should be partly cloudy overnight tonight, down around 34 degrees. Not too much above that right now. And then tomorrow should be around 52, some sunshine, a lot of clouds around. Sunday could get up to the low 60s, clouds during the day, then winds picking up in the afternoon, rain coming down, a real rainstorm into Monday morning. 37 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 549. When it comes to holiday shopping, Boston has plenty of options for those who want to avoid the big box stores and find locally made gifts. Here's a tip from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. If you're in for an all-day affair of shopping and eating, check out the Sowa Winter Festival or Snowport. There will be loads of vendors selling homemade goods, art, and food. For a quicker trip and something more unique, there's the Boston Women's Market, Harvard Square Holiday Fair, and Old South Church Christmas Craft Fair. For antique or vintage wares, there's Fenway Flea or the Somerville Flea Holiday Markets. 
To get more tips for enjoying the holidays in the city, check out WBUR's Field Guide to Boston at WBUR.org slash Field Guide. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Rapper Nicki Minaj put out her first album in five years today. I could tell he the one, could have hated on him. Used to be a high roller, but I skated on him. When he went away, then I just waited on him. Came back, then I got X-rated on him. Never- her fan base, the Barbs, are thrilled to see her return with Pink Friday 2. Minaj is the highest-selling female rapper of all time and widely considered the queen of rap. But Sydney Madden, co-host of NPR's hip-hop podcast Louder Than a Riot, says it's not just her sales that earned her the title. Rapping is a competitive art form. So Nikki, she's just a very sly, imaginative, highly skilled competitor as a rapper. And she doesn't do it halfway. When she does it, she attacks the beat and she creates a memory out of it for you as the listener. Looking for my lip gloss and my liner. Looking for me, told him meet me at the diner. Well, in honor of the big day, It's Been a Minute host Brittany Luce sat down with Sydney to discuss the rapper's legacy. Sydney started with what might be Nicki Minaj's most iconic verse. I think the one that really marked her ascension in rap was her guest verse on Kanye West Monster in 2010. Nicki is very early in her career in 2010, and she's on a track with some heavyweights. Not only Kanye, but Rick Ross and Jay-Z. And what makes this verse so singular is she accomplishes so much in a short amount of time. She gives you that New York Southside Jamaica Queens girl. She silences all these haters who say she shouldn't be anywhere. She name drops, you know, cultural staples. She cracks jokes. She shouts out her fan base. She gives you bars and theatrics mm-hmm. and everything that's going to become her calling card for decades to come. And, you know, within all the syllable bending and wild eye, but very controlled growls, she anoints herself. She's just a tornado of energy on that track that blows everybody else away. And that's why I got to give it to Monster. Honestly, I wholeheartedly agree. That was just, (laughs) oh my gosh. It just felt like a true arrival. Exactly, yeah. A lot of her success, I think, is due to the shrewd way in which she packaged herself over the years. She is a theater kid. She went to the fame high school, you know what I mean? Like, she's a total theater kid. Yeah. But she very uniquely, and I think really, like, it took a lot of foresight to come up with all of these different characters and alter egos and rapping personas for herself, like Roman Zelansky and the fictional family that she created for him, like, as one of her characters. Nikki the Ninja, Nikki the Barbie. Yes. Like, I'm Nikki Minaj, Nikki Lewinsky, Nikki the Ninja, Nikki the Boss, Nikki the Harajuku Barbie. Like, I mean, I don't even know why you girls bother at this point. I don't even know why you girls
has a whole community in her head that she can just pull out at any at time, any time. And give you so much dexterity. It's almost like each of those personalities allows her to create more points of entry for her fans, but also like young kids were obsessed with her. During her rise, she had this cross-generational appeal and accessibility that a lot of rappers couldn't have. Or, or refused to have or refused to reach because, you know, it wasn't hard. It wasn't cool to do. And she really broke the mold in so many ways. Don't worry about me and who I fire. I get what I desire. It's my empire. And yes, I call the shots. I am the umpire. I sprinkle holy water upon the vampire. In this very moment, I'm king. You know, as Nikki was coming up, rap was very much a genre that only let one woman win at a time. And, you know, she was the only female rapper on Young Money at the time of her ascent. Rap was very much steeped in this scarcity mindset. Yeah, resources are scarce. Studio time is scarce. Spots are scarce. Yeah, you know you're the only one let into the room, probably. And that the door has closed hard behind you. But still, she she played into it. Why do you think she felt the need to do that in the beginning when it seemed like she really was one of the only women in, in rap at that time. A lot of this mindset about there can only be one was instilled in hip hop very early on by management or by male rappers or by label execs because of the sexist belief that women can't work together or that they're catty or that they don't support each other. But Nikki's ascension, it had a lot to do with her being in an insular place in Young Money's crew, she even talked about how her own abilities were called into question early on when she was on Young Money. She got imposter syndrome early on. She even got body dysmorphia from being in Young Money mm. early on. And just being really in that cocoon space and knowing all the mm -hmm. history that I just mentioned, she was working with what she had. Beef and controversy have become a part of her legacy, like, like any rapper of her caliber, right? I think about Miley Cyrus at the 2015 <laughs> MTV Awards. Back to this that had a lot to say about me the other day in the press. Miley, what's good? I feel like the antics and the blowback from some of her beef and controversy has gotten more serious. Like at one point, Nikki made some deeply unfounded claims saying that the COVID-19 vaccines were causing impotence, mm -hmm. uh, which she attributed to her cousin's friend. In whatever. Trinidad, right? In Trinidad. <laughs> and like... Actual public officials had to come out and be like, hey, this is not this is not real. But also, like, I mean, there's Nikki's husband and he was convicted of attempted rape back in 1995. Nikki has defended him and and maybe did a little more. Like in 2021, the alleged victim filed a lawsuit saying mm -hmm. that Nikki indirectly threatened her and, and tried to get her to take the story back. And this behavior has drawn criticism from even her most dedicated barbs like yeah how do we square this with both her own messaging around female empowerment and what's going on with rap today i feel like that has kind of done a lot to change nikki's legacy and her image in the past few years yeah the status of her legacy is in a very ambiguous place right now the past few points in the timeline you just mentioned i would venture to say none of it is truly out of the character that Nikki has shown us before. She's very much for women's hmm. empowerment, but she's not, I don't know to her if women's empowerment 
is synonymous with women's equality. Hmm. I think it has a lot to do with being the top of your game, the top of your class, hmm. being the best you can be. And if that means smoking your adversaries in the process, so be it. That's NPR Music's Sydney Madden and It's Been a Minute host, Brittany Luce. To hear more of their conversation, check out the full It's Been a Minute podcast episode. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program works to empower students to explore future careers and discover their ideal profession before graduation. This is experiential education. More at drexel.edu. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Families are heading to farms to bring back a festive tree for the holiday season. But what happens when that Christmas tree farm is pivotal to protecting the local climate? Start your weekend right here tomorrow with 90.9 WBUR for that story and much more. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Arts Center in Newton, a community arts education space for all ages and all levels of ability. Registration open for winter classes at newartcenter.org and Volante Farms with their annual fundraiser for the Home for Little Wanderers. Volante Farms is matching donations made in person or online at volantefarms.com. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. U.S. job growth accelerated in November as employers added 199,000 jobs and the unemployment rate fell to 3.7%. Coming up, the signs of underlying labor market strength and why they're getting overlooked. It's Friday, December 8th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, what can journalism do to protect democracy during the 2024 election? We'll hear from the former editor of the Boston Globe and Washington Post, Marty Barron. And tomorrow, the city of Houston will vote for its next mayor. Texas State Senator Jackson Whitmire says crime is a top concern. Perception means so much. We were being described as the murder capital of the U.S., That hurts our public safety, but it also hurts our economy. He faces off against Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. These stories and much more coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The Food and Drug Administration today approved the first two genetic treatments for the devastating flood disorder, sickle cell disease. NPR's Rob Stein has more. 
The FDA approved one treatment that uses a harmless virus to ferry a gene into sickle cell patient cells and a second that uses gene editing to modify their cells. Both are designed to make those cells produce a healthy version of a protein sickle cell patients are missing, enabling the red blood cells to deliver oxygen inside their bodies like they're supposed to. The approvals mark a milestone for treating sickle cell, which disproportionately affects people of African descent and has long been neglected by medical research. It also marks a landmark for the rapidly advancing field of gene editing, which is showing promise for many diseases. Rob Stein, NPR News. The oldest mosque in Gaza has been destroyed in an Israeli airstrike. That's according to eyewitness testimony and footage. An Israeli official tells NPR's Daniel Estrin the mosque was used by Hamas fighters. The blue-carpeted Omari Mosque was Gaza's most iconic historic landmark. It was Gaza's oldest mosque and previously a crusader church. Gaza resident Mustafa Shahawani tells NPR it was hit over the last two days. Today was the first day he and residents could visit the ruins. Photos published by the Gaza City Municipality show a damaged minaret and some archways still standing, but most of the mosque's main hall covered in rubble. An Israeli official who asked for anonymity to give a preliminary assessment tells NPR the military targeted the mosque, saying there was a tunnel shaft there and a Hamas battalion unit it present regularly. Other cultural, religious, and historical sites have been damaged and destroyed in Gaza in the war. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Leadership at the U.N. Climate Conference is expressing optimism that the talks in Dubai will end with meaningful language to limit global warming. But as NPR's Nathan Rott reports, what that will look like isn't clear. World leaders have already agreed to try to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial times. The goal of this climate summit, known as COP28, is to negotiate a global deal to meet that pledge. Dan Jorgensen is Norway's minister at the summit. Sadly, we are not on track. This week may be our last opportunity to bring us on course. The world has already warmed 1.2 degrees Celsius, and without a strong commitment to move away from climate warming fossil fuels or a technological breakthrough to remove carbon from the atmosphere, it's likely to get much hotter. Nathan Rapp, NPR News, Dubai. Wall Street higher by the closing bell, the Dow up 130 points, NASDAQ up 63. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. More now on today's federal approval of the new treatment for severe sickle cell disease, co-developed by Boston-based Vertex Pharmaceuticals. It's a one-time gene editing therapy known as Casgevy. It'll be available to people 12 and older. Vertex Chief Scientific Officer David Altshuler calls it a historic medicine. This is the first one-time treatment for sickle cell disease with the potential for a lifetime of benefits. For science, it's the first approved medicine using the new technology of CRISPR. And for society, most importantly of all, patients with sickle cell disease have been underserved for a very long time. The treatment involves a bone marrow process. It takes several months to complete. Altshuler says Vertex is working as fast as it can to set up treatment centers, and he expects the drug to be covered by insurance. The state's largest hospital network says it's recovered financially after it reported losses over the past few years. Mass General Brigham reported today it took in nearly $19 billion in revenue in the last fiscal year. It credits more efficient patient care and stabilized inflation and labor costs. 
Mass General Brigham says it's still looking to cut costs but isn't planning any major layoffs. Mass Health will soon allow members to use a doula for pregnancy, birthing, and postpartum services. The Healy administration says it's an effort to reduce disparities and inequities for low-income families and families of color. Doulas generally don't have obstetric training but provide guidance and support during labor. The governor's office says people who use doulas are less likely to have certain complications. The new benefit becomes available in the spring. For the first time, the classic Army-Navy football game is going to be played at Gillette Stadium. It happens tomorrow afternoon. This will be the 124th meeting between the two oldest service academies. Today, cadets and midshipmen had a tug-of-war at the Minuteman National Park in Lincoln, a contest to see who could do the most pull-ups at Fennel Hall and a relay race at the Bunker Hill Monument and the USS Constitution. Should be a nice day tomorrow for a football game. Partly sunny skies to highs about 52 degrees tomorrow. Sunshine, a lot of clouds around. Sunday could get up to the low 60s, clouds during the day. Winds picking up in the afternoon on Sunday. Rain coming down. Should have a gusty wind, a real rainstorm Sunday night into Monday morning. 37 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The nation's job market has shifted to a lower gear, but it shows no sign of stalling out. That is boosting hopes for a soft landing with lower inflation and no recession. Today, we learned that U.S. employers added 199,000 jobs last month. And Pierre Scott Horsley reports. November's job total was pumped up a bit by the return of auto workers and Hollywood actors who had been on strike the previous month. Setting aside those gains, hiring was roughly in line with the 150,000 jobs that employers added in October. Hiring last month was concentrated in health care, restaurants, and government. While job growth has slowed since the beginning of the year, employers are still adding more than enough workers to keep unemployment in check. The unemployment rate fell last month to just 3.7 percent. It's been under 4 percent for 22 months now, the longest such streak since the Vietnam War. Economist Sarah House of Wells Fargo says the recent moderation in job growth is just what the Federal Reserve wants to see as it tries to bring inflation under control without sending the economy into a ditch. I think overall the Fed's going to be happy with this report. You still have an overall strong jobs market that it's not rapidly collapsing by any means. I think it keeps that path open for potentially avoiding a recession. Wage gains have also moderated. Average wages in November were up 4 percent from a year ago, compared to an average increase of 5 percent the previous year. The good news, House says, is that even though this year's pay raises appear smaller, they're no longer being gobbled up by rising prices. Importantly for consumers, it's still outpacing inflation right now. So the slowing that we're seeing in wage growth still leaves consumers in a decent position for spending. So far, solid job gains have done little to improve people's mood about the economy. Polls show a majority of Americans are grumpy about the economic outlook. Still, more than half a million people came off the sidelines last month and started looking for work. And with gasoline prices falling sharply in recent weeks, some of the gloom may be lifting just a bit. A survey from the University of Michigan released this morning shows consumer sentiment improving for the first time in five months. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. 
Let's discuss this with White House economic advisor Lael Brainerd. She is director of the National Economic Council. Welcome. Well, it's good to be here. When you look at this new data, unemployment is extremely low. Wages are growing. Job creation is strong. So what do you think the biggest challenge is right now? What's the number one problem that you're focused on trying to solve? Well, before we get to challenges, I think it is important to just recognize uh, how good the job market is. Another 199,000 jobs, 14 million more Americans working uh, since the president uh, came to office. What a change from where we were just over a year ago. If you think about it, inflation was very high and forecasters thought we couldn't get inflation down to where it is today without millions of people being unemployed. But that said, I think a lot of people still find that too many things are still too expensive. So inflation is your number one concern right now? Yeah. So I think the president very much thinks about the economy from the perspective of Americans sitting around their kitchen tables. You know, one interesting data point is the rate that women have returned to the workforce. During the pandemic, women left their jobs at far greater rates than men, partly because those jobs were more likely to be eliminated and partly because women bear a disproportionate childcare burden. And this year, we saw the share of American women in the workforce hit a record high. Why do you think we've seen such a dramatic rebound? Well, I think uh, that is a really notable feature. Again, if you think about some of the doom and gloom uh, three years ago, people were talking about the Great Resignation, saying that women, particularly women with children, wouldn't be rejoining the labor force. But instead, what we've seen is a rebound in labor force participation for women overall, but particularly for prime age women. Uh, And that is in those prime working years of 25 to 54. And that includes mothers with young children. And I think that is in part a reflection of really strong childcare policies that the president put into effect to make sure that people would have access to childcare at a time when a lot of childcare centers were facing challenges. But it's also true uh, because uh, there's more flexibility in how many Americans are able to work right now. Mm. So you're saying the ability to work from home is helpful to working age mothers? I think that is part of the answer. Part of the answer has to be childcare and continuing the policies that support access to childcare, access to Head Start, universal pre-K. So despite the strong job market and rising wages and falling inflation, Americans do not think the economy is good. A majority of respondents told Gallup last month that they think the economy is getting worse. And that has been the case for almost every month of Biden's time in office. How do you account for this disconnect? Well, while the jobs picture is very bright, we know that many Americans are worried that some things are not affordable. And that's why the president is so focused on fighting to bring down costs for hardworking Americans. For instance, the president believes it just isn't right that prescription drugs are practically unaffordable for many Americans. And that's why he's fighting to lower health care costs. He got great legislation to cap insulin costs for seniors at $35 a month. That's down from $400 for many. You know, we also are capping out-of-pocket drug costs for seniors at $2,000 per year. And Medicare has the authority now to negotiate prices starting with 10 drugs next year. And yet, do you think when roughly three quarters of Americans tell Gallup the economy is getting worse, 
it's because of something like insulin prices? I mean, the question seems to be broader than that, and I would think the answer comes from a sentiment that's broader than that. Well, actually, this morning we saw a really big jump up in consumer sentiment uh, in the Michigan survey, and I think consumers are very focused on the costs that matter most to them. Healthcare is a huge uh, affordability issue for so many Americans. But consumers are also tired of being hit by hidden fees. That's why we're cracking down on junk fees in everything from airline ticketing to credit cards to overdraft fees. Um, and it's also really important, you know, now that we have fixed supply chains and input costs are coming down, corporations need to be passing those savings on to consumers. And we think that will go a long way to continuing that increase in consumer sentiment that we saw today. Do you find it puzzling just personally as an economist who is focused on numbers and driven by data to look at these consistently positive unemployment reports and see the numbers consistently say Americans think the economy is bad? I mean, it just feels like such a yawning chasm. Yeah, no, it's it's a good question. It's a it's a much more uh, mixed picture than that. Um, if you look at Americans' attitudes towards their personal finances, actually, you know, more than two thirds of Americans feel that their personal finances have improved, and that makes sense because wealth is up by about thirty seven percent for the median household since the pandemic. And it's also true that wages are up more than uh, inflation, so people can actually afford more. But at the same time, when Americans look at particular prices, they're not coming down. That's why we are going to continue fighting to bring those costs down. Leo Brainerd is director of the National Economic Council. Thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. Houston voters will choose their next mayor tomorrow in a runoff election between Texas State Senator John Whitmire and Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. The contest will have significant implications for how the country's fourth largest city addresses concerns about public safety and a looming budget crisis as federal COVID relief funds run out. Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider reports. Whitmire and Jackson Lee, both Democrats, emerged as the top two vote-getters during the first round of this formerly nonpartisan election. Whitmire is white and centrist, while Jackson Lee is black and more progressive. The main issue driving voters to the polls in Houston this year is crime. Jackson Lee is a member of the House Homeland Security and Judiciary Committees. Whitmire chairs the Texas Senate's Criminal Justice Committee. He says that even though crime rates are falling in Houston, public safety is still a cause for concern. Perception means so much. You know, last fall with the number of murders we had for about two months, we were being described as the murder capital of the U.S. That hurts our public safety, but it also hurts our economy. Houston isn't the murder capital of the U.S. According to data from the Houston Police Department, the city ranked fourth in the country for murders in 2022 behind Chicago, Philadelphia, and New York. Still, crime is top of mind for voters and a place where the candidates are seeking to differentiate themselves. Whitmire's solution is more police. Increase hiring, but also bring in 200 state troopers to aid the Houston Police Department with things like traffic enforcement. That's been controversial. Similar moves in Austin and Dallas have led to accusations of racial profiling. Jackson Lee attacked Whitmire's record during a debate on Houston's Fox 26. Well, unfortunately, under the tenure of my good friend, Senator 
more African-Americans and Hispanics were locked up in the state system. Crime is far from the only problem Houston's next mayor will need to address. We're looking at the fiscal cliff. That's University of Houston political scientist Geronimo Cortina. He says the city has been relying on federal COVID relief funds for the past few years to help balance its budgets. That money is about to run out. And that has very important implications for the delivery of services, for uh, crime and safety, public safety issues, but also in terms of our aging infrastructure. Cortina co-authored a Houston Public Media, Houston Chronicle, UH Political Science and Population Health poll. It shows Whitmire with the support of 42 percent of likely voters, compared to 35 percent for Jackson Lee. She'll need a strong turnout among black voters to overcome Whitmire's advantage with older white voters. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Schneider in Houston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Marketplace starts at 6.30 tonight. Since consumer spending has been so hard to predict this year, businesses are struggling to figure out how many workers they need to hire for the holidays. We saw so few announcements from companies coming into this season because they were so uncertain. An outlook for the holiday labor market coming up on Marketplace. Stocks today notched a sixth straight week of gains. The Dow rose nearly four-tenths of a percent. S&P also gained four-tenths of a percent, a new high for the year. And the Nasdaq gained nearly a half percent. The average cost of home heating oil in the state continues to rise with the recent cold temperatures. The new survey by the State Department of Energy Resources shows the statewide average is 4.17 a gallon. That's 90 cents lower than this time last year. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at wbur.org slash cars. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes is tracking a storm Sunday night into Monday, but before that she says it should be a pretty mild weekend. Highs in the 50s tomorrow under mostly cloudy skies, a sprinkle or an isolated shower. Sunday, we're going to challenge records as highs climb into the 60s. Showers arrive Sunday afternoon, turn to a steady rain Sunday evening. There'll be heavy rain Sunday night into Monday morning. Embedded thunder is also possible. Rainfall totals around an inch. Localized flooding possible. The wind will be an issue too. Ramping up Sunday night, gusts 45 to 55 miles per hour likely in eastern Massachusetts, including the city, with some gusts to 65 miles per hour from Cape Ann to the South Shore and Cape Cod. Utility crews are prepared to respond to any outages from Sunday's storm. This is WBUR at 620. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning, coaching, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. 
This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We journalists lament that we have used the term uncharted waters so often in recent years to describe the state of American politics that the term has almost ceased to register. But what else can we call this? What words feel adequate to the challenge of reporting on what is shaping up to be yet another presidential election year of, yes, uncharted waters, covering a Republican frontrunner who may well spend more time in court than on the campaign trail in these coming months? So how do we cover this? What have we learned from covering the elections of 2016 and 2020? How can we do better? How do we earn back public trust? I'm going to put these questions to a man who ran the newsrooms of the Miami Herald and the Boston Globe, and then took over the Washington Post in 2013 and steered that newsroom through Donald Trump's presidency. Martin Barron wrote about it all in his recent memoir, Collision of Power. Marty Barron, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. There's so much discussion these days, as you know, over whether democracy is on the line in next year's election. Do you believe it is? Uh, yes, I absolutely do believe it is. All you have to do is listen to what uh, Donald Trump has been talking about, what he says he's going to do in a, another administration. He's the only politician I've heard actually talk about suspending the Constitution. He's talked about uh, using the military to suppress entirely legitimate protests, using the Insurrection Act talked about bringing treason charges against the then outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's talked about bringing treason charges against Comcast, the owner of NBC and MSNBC. He's talked explicitly about weaponizing the government against his political enemies. And of course, he continues to talk about crushing an independent press. So all of those by nature, by definition, are authoritarian in nature. So let's turn to our role as longstanding members of an independent press. If one believes, as I gather you do, that good journalism is an act of patriotism, what does that look like these days? Well, I think we have to be clear about what a second Trump administration uh, would look like. We also have to look at what a second Biden administration would look like and see what his plans are. But with regard to Trump, he's being very explicit about uh, what he intends to do. So we report about. on what he says he intends to do. That's that's well, one of... not just what he says, but talking to his team and the plans that they're making for the policies they intend to implement as soon as he moves into the White House, if that turns out to be the case. So let me put to you a couple of the arguments which you anticipate and write about in your memoir. One is that we can do the greatest reporting in the world. Does it matter if people, including Trump voters, are not reading or listening to media outlets like the Washington Post or like NPR, if we're not reaching people? Yeah, well, it's true. Uh, media consumption is highly polarized. The real challenge is how do we reach a broader audience, as you say? Uh, yeah. I think there are a number of things that uh, we can do. I don't think that it's the case that our, our work doesn't resonate at all. I think it does resonate with the independent thinkers out there. Uh, that may not be a huge portion of the population, but it's a significant portion of the population. But I, I think we need to cover the totality of American society. We need to reflect people's uh, lives, their concerns. And then on the more highly charged topics, we need to lay out the evidence. We need to point, if we're talking about a court document, we need to show that court document. Uh, we need to annotate it so that people can see exactly where we got the information, point to a video, point to a data set, point to an audio, whatever it might be. Make the assumption that people won't believe a word we say and then say, okay, here's the evidence in the same way that a, a trial lawyer would present the evidence before a jury in a court. 
I guess everything you're telling me sounds utterly reasonable. It also sounds not worlds away from what you might have told me 10 or 20 years ago if I were asking you how to cover a presidential election. Is it enough these days to lay out the evidence, to report facts, if people don't believe them? Well, I, as I said, I do think that there is a portion of the population that is open to evidence. I think we'll never reach the point where everybody is going to trust what we do, but we can certainly reach a majority of the population and have them trust us. And let's look at incremental improvement. And I think that's what we ought to be focusing on. So I know you're out now. You're happily retired. If you were back at the helm of the Washington Post today, would you be telling editors, telling reporters to approach this next election in any way differently than 2020? Well, I'm happy with what we did in 2020 in terms of how we covered the election, both in 2020 and 2016. And I would approach it very much in the same way, at least at the Post. I do think there's some things that the media in general could change. I certainly don't think that CNN and Fox News should do what they did in 2016, which was airing his rallies from beginning to end without any interruption, without acting as an intermediary whatsoever and letting him say whatever he wanted, many of them completely, entirely falsehoods. And so that I don't think was helpful. And it was a, practically a campaign gift to, uh, to Donald Trump. So that kind of media behavior, I, I don't think is appropriate and certainly should not be repeated. You describe in this book lying awake at night, not able to sleep. In this instance, you're agonizing over whether and what to publish about documents to do with National Security Agency surveillance documents that Edward Snowden had leaked. And you write about spending the night reading about the Espionage Act of 1917 and looking at provisions that spell out prison terms. I want to know what should be keeping newsroom editors awake tonight? December 2023? Uh, I would worry about particularly the impact of generative artificial intelligence, the idea that fake images, fake visuals of all types, uh, whether it be photographs or videos, fake audios uh, will be circulating rapidly. They'll be disseminated across the entire country, across the world, and it will be very difficult for the media to catch up to that. Uh, we are completely unprepared for that. People are going to believe those videos and those fake images and those fake audios, and we are not in a position as a profession to counteract that with the speed that we really need. And so that, that is what worries me, and I suspect that toward the end of this campaign, uh, we'll see a lot of that stuff, and it will affect people's votes, and we in the profession uh, won't have the capacity to, uh, to deal with it. Last thing, as you and I speak, it seems major news outlet after major news outlet has been publishing um, op-eds or analysis pieces, but warning about the risks and dangers of a possible second Trump presidency. My question to you, Marty Barron, is that a good idea, given a lot of people do not distinguish between reporters and the news pages and editorials and the editorial page? Well, I think in all possible ways, we need to explain what a, a second Trump administration would look like. I think that is the task of people on the opinion pages. I think that's the task of reporters as well. And I think that it's it's an obligation. But on the does part it reinforce the, the view that Trump loves to put out there that America media is is against him, that it's a witch hunt? I don't, uh, maybe it does. Uh, I don't think we have an alternative except to tell the American public what it might be in for what it's likely to be in for if Trump were to be reelected. 
Morton Barron, former editor of The Washington Post and author of Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and The Washington Post. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Boston is blessed with some of the most creative college radio stations around. Tomorrow morning on WBUR, the first comprehensive history of U.S. college radio, including Greater Boston's key spot on the dial. Listen up. Temperatures should drop a few more degrees from where they are now. They're now at 37. Tomorrow, a blend of clouds and sunshine, uh, about 50 degrees for a high. Then changeable weather on Sunday. Could get into record warm territory, breaking 60 degrees. Clouds should start the day, then let loose with rain in the afternoon. A heavy rain Sunday night. Some wild winds, 44 to 55 miles an hour. The rainstorm could continue into Monday morning. Again, 37 degrees in Boston at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy, preparing students through innovation, entrepreneurship, and human-centered design. Tour Day is tomorrow. neiacademy.org.